This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited to be back for another year yes. and to continue our bold predictions. Bold predictions for 2020 continue, and unlike previous years, we are bringing in some experts to help us with these predictions because we've thrown a few bold ones out there, but <laughs> yeah. we'd like to see what the experts are saying. And to do that, we are joined in the studio today by a longtime supporter and good friend of the podcast, Andrew Brown. Welcome to the show. G'day, guys. Lovely to be here. It is good. It is good. We uh, love getting you into chat, Andrew, because you've always got some very strong opinions and are very much looking forward to some of your bold predictions for 2020. They could be extremely bold. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great. The bolder, the better. (laughs) So to give you a sense of some of the predictions that we've thrown out there, we might might give you an example or two Mm. and then we'll, we'll get stuck into it. So if I kick it off, one of my bold predictions was that we will have a company that cracks a $2 trillion market cap in 2020. That is a possibility. Yeah. I mean, you've got three companies with over 1 trillion US dollar market caps, which is, um, you know, basically Apple, Amazon, and uh, very recently joined by Alphabet or Google, Mm. as, as you know it. There is that possibility, but it's going to require a few things that I think would be extremely worrisome trends. That's that's why it's bold. And um, <laughs> I suspect we may not quite get there. Yeah. Okay, we yeah. may not quite get there. But that gives you a sense of what we're going for. Do you want to throw one of yours out, Bryce? I guess if we're talking market cap, I said that CSL will be the largest company on the ASX by the end of the year. I think that's rather unlikely. They've got a fair way to go to actually catch up with, you know, the Com Banks and BHPs of the world. So yeah. it's bold. It's bold. <laughs> yeah. It's very bold. I think they're, they're actually about the third largest bio 
tech company in the world at the moment anyway by market cap. Mm-hmm. So yeah. There you go. A less bold and safer prediction would have been the largest biotech company. Oh, damn it. Yeah. Damn it. Anyway, <laughs> next time, next year. All right, well, let's crack in, Ren. You wanted to kick off a speed round with Andrew yeah, and then, and then yes. we'll let Andrew take over. So, Andrew, I gave this speed round to Bryce in our earlier episode, so I'll give you the same questions. And simply, it's over or under. What do you yep. think? So, I'll, I'll name an index or an asset class yep. and say a percentage growth or whatever, yep. and then you tell me if you think it's over or under. Right. So, first one, ASX 200, over under 20%. Uh, under. Okay. S&P 500, same, over under 20%. Under. Okay. Australia? Australian residential property averaged across the country, plus or minus 10%. Under. Okay. That's the first one you differed from Bryce. Bitcoin, up plus or minus flat? Up plus or minus flat. So, like, (laughs) will it go up or will it go down in 2020? I think it will go up from where it is. Interesting. Okay. And don't forget, I think it's... uh, scam. Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> Interested to understand your reasons why, but we'll finish the speed round first. Last one, Australian interest rates, will they go negative? No. Okay. Nice. There you go. Very similar answers to Bryce. I'm an expert. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or I said bad questions. <laughs> nice. Well, Andrew, we started sort of discussing our general thoughts on 2020. We would love, before you jump into bold predictions, how are you feeling about 2020 as opposed to where we sit at the end of 2019. I think we are at one of the most dangerous places in my investment career. We'll leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) To be quite blunt. Wow. um, I really think the sort of euphoria that we've seen in global equity markets, and I'll explain how that's developed, I think is really rather dangerous. And we're in really quite dangerous territory because 2019 was virtually a unique year. Uh, I've I've been investing uh, professionally since 1980 and there's actually not been a year like 2019, uh, which sounds quite quite strange, not because the stock market went up 30%, there's been plenty of those, but it went up 30% against a backdrop which is uh, actually getting worse. And people are starting to try and talk themselves into believing that the backdrop's actually getting better. Um, and yet, you know, we've really reached kind of, I don't know if we've reached the limits of what's going on with monetary policy. And I'll do my very best through this podcast to keep the sort of uh, technical stuff down and make it explainable. We'll just interrupt you and ask you to explain yeah, it if e- we need exactly. to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we're starting to get to a very, very stretched place. Now, when, when the elastic band breaks, I don't know, but we're really starting to get there. And, and obviously I'll, I'll explain why as we, as we go along. But in broad terms, it relates to the fact that share prices are supposed to reflect people's views of the future of the individual company. And the future of the individual company is obviously driven by usually its earnings growth and its future expected earnings growth and the environment for that. And in, certainly in the case of Australia, that's got materially worse over the last 12 months and stock prices are up oh, over actually uh, 12 months and uh, two weeks. Uh, you know, they're up about sort of 35%, which is nuts. And one part of the Australian market, which is about 40-odd percent of the market, which is non financial stocks, but non-resource stocks either, and non-property stocks. So they're about 44% of the market. They're trading at future price earnings multiples that I have never seen in my career. 
and you don't need to be Einstein to walk around the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and know that the economic environment out there is best described as not very good. <laughs> yeah. So are you then going to be as active as you were in the markets in 2019 as you will be in 2020, do you think? Will you be taking a lot of short positions? How are you going to be approaching it? We're already pretty heavily short, and that's certainly in the shorter term as cost is. Mm, mm. And that's, you know, you can't get the top absolutely right. And you know, I will explain why in the last sort of three to four months, the markets have kicked up quite sharply in the US in particular. The S&P's up about sort of 10% since the start of September and the NASDAQ's up about 15 And Australia did nothing much in the final quarter, but it's certainly making up for it so far in January. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'll explain why that's going on and you'll start to see, or I hope your listeners will start to see, we're in a really quite dangerous environment. So even if you think I'm being a sort of grumpy old man, you know, I think there were the one message I think throughout this podcast for 2020 is for Christ's sake, be careful mm. because making money was actually not for me because I don't invest like that. But for a lot of people, making money in 2019 was quite easy, especially to be blunt, if you were a millennial and you invested in millennial <laughs> <Yeah>. kind of <laughs> things. Although, although pot stocks had a bad year. Pot, pot stocks <laughs> had a bad year, but certainly... Um, you know, things, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a variety of buy now, pay later type stocks in Australia and most of those did pretty well. And, you know, a variety of other things that, you know, typically, you know, someone of, of your generation would be interested and invested in all did extraordinarily well. I mean, the best example by a long way is, of course, Apple. I had a short in Apple in 2018. We were short in the high 100s. Mm. I closed the short out on Christmas morning, <laughs> Australian time 2018, at $146. Mm. Today, you know, the, the stock is 318. Yeah, mm. yeah. Okay. And you, you all probably think Apple's a growth company. It's not. It's not a growth company at all. Its earnings peaked out in 2015 and they had another little bout back in 2018. I mean, the expectation is that there'll be new devices to cope with 5G and that there'll be strong growth in that. Uh, and yes, we know the service business continues to grow strongly and it's a better income stream. But um, to give you an idea, Apple's total value has gone from about five times its earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization back in 2015 to close on 17. So it's been all re-rating. Mm. And what, what you find, and that's why in my annual general meeting uh, presentation, which you can find on the net, east72.com.au. And we might include it in show notes. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. What you'll see is I used Apple and, and we had, we've had no position in Apple until very, very recently. Apple was just the epitome of what's gone on in the market, mm. uh, that the same income stream has been repriced upwards dramatically, not just a little bit, but a lot. And so we've gone from a stock market in the US that was a little bit on the cheap side at Christmas time 2019 because the market had fallen 20% nearly in that quarter. And so I was more than happy to be very, very fully invested. And I had a lot of stocks that had fallen quite sharply in that quarter that I really liked. And so you know, we bought those up at cheaper prices. And the complaint is not the market has gone up. You expected it to go up from there. I certainly expected a pretty quick 10% bounce. We got that. Then it leveled out and then it's gone bananas. Mm. And what I didn't expect was that the market would go up 30% mm. against a backdrop of, of negative earnings revisions in the US. Just to put it simply, a year ago, most people thought 2019 earnings in the US would be about 172 points of the Standard & Poor's index, and it's going to come in at 163. 
and yet the market's up 30%. Mm. And you still have this very inflated expectation for 2020 against a backdrop of growth in the US, which is about 2%. And what's scary about that 2% growth is it's had the kitchen sink thrown at it in roughly the last four to five months by the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. And I think one of the big things about 2020, I don't know if it'll be 2020 or 2021, but at some stage, um, we're going to get the nightmare that my generation has bequeathed to your generation. And it's called modern monetary theory, which is, which is basically central banks who have thrown everything by effectively printing money to buy government bonds from banks, which banks then use the uh, cash that they get from that to make loans. Well, that's what they're supposed to do, but they don't. And so what you have now is you have a situation where in rough terms for every dollar that a central bank creates and, and uses in monetary policy, it's creating less than 80 cents of GDP growth. That's wow. really, really frightening. And that is a global phenomenon. It's a phenomenon in the US. It's obviously been a phenomenon in Japan for a long period of time. And of course, the, the place it's really scary and is utterly out of control is Europe. Mm. And it's having less and less impact in Europe. So uh, monetary policy is frightening. Well, speaking of monetary policy, do you have a bold prediction that I guess in Australia or in the US are related to monetary policy that we'll be able to track during the year? Yeah. I think, look, in in the US, just to give you the idea, in, in 2019, you had one quarter point interest rate cuts of the federal fun, funds rate. Just to explain to your listeners, the federal funds rate is the rate at which banks lend to each other on an overnight basis in the money market. And the Federal Reserve Board basically puts cash into the market or takes cash out of the market to keep that rate in a bound. The bound at the moment is one and a half to one and three quarter percent. Uh, there were three rate cuts in uh, August, September and at the end of October last year, quarter percent each. What the Federal Reserve has been doing as well, though, which is worth reading about, is they've been intervening in what's called the repo market. Now, the repo market is similar to the federal funds market, but the, the repo bit of it means that a bank lends to another institution that's not necessarily a bank. It might be a broker-dealer, but it takes security of a US Treasury bond or a US Treasury bill, and it's an overnight thing again. And what happened in September is that a lot of the banks had excess cash claimed that new regulations meant that they couldn't lose some of that cash and lend it into the repo market. And so the repo market was short funds. Okay, so big demand, no supply, price goes up. So the price spiked in early September to effectively 10% one night. Okay, remember the bounce supposed to be, at uh, that time it was basically about uh, two to two, two and a quarter. So the Fed started intervening and supplying money into the repo market, said it would, was very frightened about the market being short funds at Christmas time for tax payments. And so to give you an idea, okay, and these are the scary, frightening numbers that you don't have to be an economist to understand. Since September, the Fed has printed money equivalent to 2% of US GDP in four months and put that money into the market. 450 billion US dollars. The US economy is the size of the US economy in nominal terms. In other words, today's money is about $21 trillion. 
at the moment, the Federal Reserve Board, having held uh, the balance sheet equivalent of, they had about $4.5 trillion of securities on their balance sheet at the peak when they started unwinding. And of course, when they started unwinding, the stock market fell 20%. <laughs> okay. That was loud. That was, that was 2018. So they stopped sort of, they, they were unwinding a little bit, but they cut interest rates. In the last four months, they put 450 billion in. So their balance sheets back up over $4 trillion again. That's the equivalent of 19% of US GDP. That's chicken feed, by the way. In Japan, the central bank has the equivalent holding of 107% of GDP, and and in Europe, it's in the 40s. So this is the scary stuff that these people are going to bequeath to your generation of how the hell do we unwind this? And the really scary thing is if there's some kind of external shock, and it's why the market got very jittery very quickly when the Iranian incident happened recently, if there's an external shock, what have they got to to yeah. do what yeah. you know what, what have they got to fight it with and the real problem guys is and, and we'll talk about this with property in, in a minute the real problem guys is that there's there's two or three components to monetary policy there's the price of money we can't do much more with the price of money you know if you you know if you guys with your alter egos on you know, of key executives in major Australian <laughs> companies, you know, you know full well. If your project won't work at a 2% internal rate of return, it ain't going to work at one and a half mm. or one. I mean, at two, you won't even look at it, obviously, we know that. So the price doesn't matter anymore. It's irrelevant, okay? So it's about supply. And what's going on is that supply is not getting to the people that need it. It's not getting to the consumer, whereas it is getting to markets, so if you're a hedge fund in the US, yeah, unlimited money <laughs> at cheap prices. So what do you think they've been doing the last three months? They've been using that kind of money and buying all kinds of, you know, all kinds of crazy stocks. Consumer lending in the US is really slow. Don't believe me, you know, the date we're recording this, we've had a week of US bank results. And as, as a gross generalization, the banks that are involved in investment banking have done okay. Okay, you know, ranging from JP Morgan, who did very well, to Citibank, who weren't bad, and Goldman, who were ordinary, but okay. The banks that are involved in real consumer banking and a few other related things, but not investment banking, Bank of New York Mellon, their stock fell 8% straight out of the report. Uh, US Bank Corp, that fell 4 PNC Financial, that fell 4 Bank America, sure, they've got the Merrill Lynch franchise, if you will, but yeah, they've, they've got a lot of consumer stuff as well. And their stock was down 3%. And they're all saying the same thing. They don't have lending and their interest margins are being compressed. And when we talk about Australia and the Australian stock market outlook, that's going to be one of the key features we touch on. So what can we expect to see from a monetary policy movement, do you think? Well, this is going to, this is going to be the real key, Bryce, because we may see some real volatility. If the Fed at the moment seem, they look as though they're caught in the headlights. You know, they've exp- they, but they've got to stop doing this. You know, to be quite frank, it's like, you know, I'm sorry, it's like being at a party. You know, it's three in the morning and there's plenty of beer there, but you can't. <laughs> time to go home. <laughs> yeah, but you had enough, you know, come on, it's time to go home. I oh, know, no, no, but if I go home, I'll get in trouble with, you know, my partner or, or whoever. And that's the problem. If the Fed start backing off, they've got to do it really carefully because otherwise they could cause a little bit of an accident mm. and we don't want that. And I'm going to come on and show you how the accident might happen because we've actually we've been down this road a little bit in quite recent times as well. 
So it might be a nice segue just to talk about the cheapest, one of the cheapest commodities in the world. Fire away. Probably one of the cheapest commodities in the world is volatility. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> so if you're if you're the ultimate contrarian investor, you're basically trying to buy volatility in some way or other. Maybe just do you want to explain yeah, how ab- you can? Yeah. Absolutely. Volatility is basically the it's the sort of range of moves on the stock market. You can usually measure it on a daily basis, but it's it's sort of measured on an annualized basis. And it's used, if any of you have done finance courses at uh, university, you, you'll have heard of the Black-Scholes option pricing model, and volatility is a really important element to that. And you know, by doing reverse algebra, you can back out the, the implied volatility priced into an option. So volatility at the moment, there are two types of volatility. There's the volatility you can buy, and you can buy a VIX contract, it's called, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And but that reflects basically people's expectations of the future. It's a futures contract. But you can look at that relative to what's actually happened in the stock market. So you've had periods of time, particularly in late 2017, when the VIX was trading at about 11, you know, 9, 10, 11. But the actual realized day-to-day volatility on the market was an annualized figure of about five. That is so low, it's not funny. Okay. Please bear in mind the VIX got to 80 at the worst of the GFC, which was equally ludicrous. Okay. And when things spike, it gets about 45. Now, you may remember we had a period of time in late 2017 into early 2018 where the market was going up, there was no volatility, and then we got to February and we had a train smash and the market fell 15% real quick. And we had a trade smash because volatility spiked from basically nothing to about 45 in oh, two days. And the problem you have is that, you know, that was caused by people readjusting their views on things. And if volatility spikes, there'll be a number of people just get carried out. Okay. And if it spikes for a period of time, people will really get carried out. Guess why I think it might spike and it might spike soon. We are currently in the eighth longest period in the last 50 years where the S&P 500 has not gone up or down more than 1% in a day. Wow. We are how, over. How long is that period? That's over 60 days. Wow. Okay. Now, the scary, scary thing about it, and if you want to see the impact of central banks in action, one of the things that central bank money policy does by, you know, keeping money supply high, you know, keeping the markets adequately supplied with liquidity and keeping interest rates low is it takes away people's it takes away what I'd call the price discovery mechanism yeah it just you know everybody's you, you, the fed's got your back mm-hmm. don't fight the fed you know you've heard all these <laughs> clichés to give you an idea so this is the eighth longest period without a 1 or 1% or greater move in the S&P over a day okay the longest period was in 1967 then we had a period in 1993 1972 october 2018 1968, January 2018, 1995, and now today. So three of the top eight are in the last two years. Mm. Doesn't that start to tell you something? That all this money policy is distorting pricing because it's distorting volatility. It's not letting the market clear. One of the great things about stock markets over time and any asset market over time is you've got to let it correct. If there's a problem and people don't want to buy anymore because they're worried about 
whatever they're worried about, and prices are going to fall. You've got to let them fall. And it's as though the Federal Reserve Board doesn't want US stock prices to fall. Mm. And that's crazy because, of course, when they do fall eventually, they're going to fall a hell of a lot harder than people ever imagine, okay, because you, the clearing mechanism is not operating at the moment, and that is uh, that is really, really dangerous. So um, because I'm contrarian and when I look at something like that, I say, hey, we've got to be getting close to the possibility of volatility really starting to pick up, and if that happens, uh, the stock market will correct and the US stock market needs a pause. So I'm interested in picking up on some of the similarities and differences between the US and Australia. Yeah, absolutely. If we sum up the US experience, that even though earnings, companies' earnings are going down, the stock market is going up because the Fed is supporting them? Their earnings are not going down, but they're just not growing at the rate people thought they were going to grow at. So the expectation for 2020 is US earnings will grow about 7%. Okay, yes, tooth fairies come and stick sixpences in my little (laughs) jar as well. They won't grow because the economy is just not that strong. People are hoping, and the more narrative that you read, people are trying to sort of pick things that are sliding along the bottom. And there is a bit of a base effect in a few industries. But I, I think the seven's a bit too optimistic. Might be three or four, but it will be positive. So if we look at that and we yeah. you know, you explained how the Fed is being very active in yeah. supporting the market. Yeah. And then we look at Australia where yeah. we have a similar divergence between the stock market return yeah. and uh, earnings. Yeah. Is that driven by a similar central bank activism? Partially, yes. It's not as active as the Fed because we're not really printing money here. We don't have quantitative easing, this this stuff's called broadly. We don't have that in Australia. We're having the debate about whether we should have it. And Philip Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank, sort of put it on ice for the time being. But it's quite interesting, you know, because Philip Lowe did nothing for 18 months and then all of a sudden started cutting interest rates like uh, you couldn't believe. And we'll get another rate cut, I think. Uh, the impacts of those rate cuts. That's a bold prediction, rate that's cut. A bold prediction. <laughs> it's it's not a bold prediction at all. The market's building it in. What these rate cuts are doing is they're basically pushing millennials who've got cash and assets, you know, because they're the most demographically advantaged generation in human history. Let's get that absolutely on okay. the, on the plate. What, what is what do you mean by demographically advantage? Well, if you're basically if you're a um, if, sorry if you're a baby boomer, I think I might have said millennial. I don't mean. Yeah, I was going to get yeah. my back up yeah, at that. Sorry, right. If you're a baby boomer, you're the most demographically advantaged generation in history because you uh, you were growing up in the seventies. Uh, if you're an older baby boomer, in other words, you're in your mid seventies now. Basically, you, you were starting to earn money in the nineteen seventies. Asset prices were really cheap. You got an inheritance from your parents who bought asset prices even cheaper, like houses. And basically, you've had you know a, a number of stock market booms. So you should have real wealth. And um, now, with that real wealth, you're not getting a yield on it. Yeah, and they've so, had a big property price boom, boom as well. Big, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, they've had a property price boom. So they're not getting a yield on anything. So they're going up the risk curve. So they're buying shares for yield. And the trouble is, some of the shares they bought for yield, uh, you know, if you bought Westpac shares two years ago for yield, 
well done. <laughs> you know, you lost thirty percent of your capital. You know, you got a you got a nice six percent fully frank dividend yield, but you lost thirty percent of your money. And this is the problem that we're facing in Australia: that the earning space for these companies is really poor, by and large. I'm generalising here. Clearly, there are always companies that are that are doing a bit better. But my boldest prediction, perhaps, is. I think there is a serious possibility of a recession in Australia at some stage in 2020. A uh, recession is two quarters of negative real GDP growth. Okay. And if we don't get it in 2020, we'll be halfway into it for 2021. That it is it, a bold prediction. Yeah. 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 Note that down. <laughs> yeah. Note that down. <laughs> it is, it is hard to understate to people that this is an economy that's got problems and it's got massive problems. Um, it's got so much debt, it's not funny. We're the second most indebted economy in terms of personal debt to GDP in the world behind Switzerland. That is used to buy domestic assets. They're called houses. <laughs> okay. So we're using a lot of debt from around the world to buy a domestic asset. Okay. The last country that did that in earnest was Ireland. We have negated that a bit because we've had strong immigration. Okay, we've had 250,000 people a year coming to Australia. That's been re, it sort of varies, fluctuates a bit, but by and large, that's been the case. And, and we, we basically create about another 130,000 bubs a year. So we've had roughly the population's going up 380 to 400,000 a year on a 25 million person base. So immigration's helped a great deal. That needs to be sustained. So we all know GDP per person is going down. GDP in totality is going up because we're getting more people. Can we sustain that? I don't know. It depends, you know, where they're coming from. Are they productive? The other problem we've got is that job growth, you know, we're still getting job growth, but it's in real low paid industries. Yeah. That's the problem. If you look at you know, what industry is growing like crazy in terms of jobs, well, it's healthcare. Okay. So unless you're a brain surgeon, the likelihood is that most of the 1.7 million people employed in healthcare in this country really don't get great money. Okay. You don't see nurses with Rolexes. Let's put it that way. And the industries that get paid quite well are contracting, construction, finance. You know, remember the banks between them employ what, 120,000 or more people. Do you think they're going to be taking on masses of new people? I don't think so. Yeah, and they're pretty well paid people by, by and large, even even at lower levels. So what you're finding is that that jobs in Australia they're being created in really low paid industries, which is why, of course, wages growth is so low. How the hell are you going to have an economy that the consumer is sixty percent of the economy? How are you going to really get growth when the consumer is under pressure? And they don't have wage growth and the job creation is in, you know, by and large in places where the pay is quite low. You sit across that. We've quite clearly had massive political mistakes from both parties over the last few years in terms of, you know, things that have a real damaging impact on the economy. You know, I've got a new damaging impact on the economy in my office. It's called NBN. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should say if uh, people want to hear Andrew's political views, um, he's very active Go on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we've had a lot of policy mistakes. And, and of course, you know, we, we've had a, a, a massive policy mistake, of course, you know, in, in, in December 2019 and January 2020, which, of course, is inadequate uh, investment in infrastructure to maintain the bush mm. and uh, and now it's come home yeah and we'll have a genuine impact on the economy yeah that that's hard to measure by the way everybody says oh i mean 0.3 of one percent you can measure the direct impacts 
but you can't measure the indirect impacts. Yeah. Mm, and the yeah. indirect impacts, I think, uh, especially young people, I think, really feel. Yeah, the indirect impact is, oh, shit, these poor people who've lost their house, your generation is actually much more pro-animal than uh, I think my generation mm. as well. So to be blunt, you actually just don't feel very good. And if you don't feel very good, are you going to go out and spend an awful lot of money? No, you're not. You simply are not because you just don't feel good about doing it. There's other things going on in our economy as well. Retail is in dire straits. Mm. I think it's something like over 200 stores in Australia have closed in the last fortnight. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what, one of the things that's really, by the way, uh, and this is a fairly new phenomenon and economists are really scrambling to get their heads around it, so I'm not being critical of them, the whole Black Friday, Cyber Monday thing, Okay, this year, category, I mean, last year, obviously, it was around in the year before, but it was pretty small. It was okay. It was growing last year. But this year, I think, uh, let's be blunt, it killed Christmas. Mm. So what you saw, you saw some very good retail sales figures for November. I know, because I've got three uh, millennial kids, and uh, <laughs> let's just say they uh, they spent up big in November, and uh, and I'm still waiting for my Christmas present. <laughs> so, you know, they, and they did not spend in December, and it, and it's abundantly clear. I mean, you didn't see you didn't see the guy from the Australian Retailers Association on TV in in the week leading up to Christmas. Oh, it's going to be a record Christmas. Yeah. Australians are going to spend twenty trillion dollars. You know, blah blah blah. You didn't see him. Russell Zimmerman was missing, so they wheeled him out on Boxing Day. Oh, we're going to have two billion dollar Boxing Day sales. Didn't happen. <laughs> okay, so we've got real problems, and retail is a big employer. Retail employs ten percent of the employed population. Okay. There's about 13 million people employed in Australia. Retail employs, you know, about 1.2 million of them. Okay. And they're getting cleaned up. Okay. There's some structural things going on, as, as you guys well know, you know, the Amazons of the world, you know, which in a sense, you know, help the Cyber Mondays and Black Fridays. Rents in Australia and retail are ludicrous. And of course, you're seeing the strip shop gutted. If you want to see empty strip shops, Okay. King's Cross. Oh, <laughs> no, not just the King's Cross. I mean, I work near King's Cross, but King's Cross, Manly, they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, all the, through the, the inner west. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, oh, all through the inner city. If you want to see stuff that makes you cry, go to Oxford Street, turn off Oxford, go down Oxford Street towards the city, turn off left into Crown Street. There's a pizza shop on the corner. There's, there's a couple of fast food franchises that sell Mexican and burgers with cockroaches. And then you get to a selection of five shops and they're all empty. There's just five shops in a row, all empty. I hope it's not the same bloke. Probably is. But you're just seeing retail hollowed out in this country. And, and of course, you know, our great, you know, one of our greatest companies over the last 50 years made its money out of providing retail to Australians, Westfield. And, you know, it's symptomatic to me of the fact that the founding family of Westfield, by and large, has exited completely their holdings of the, the Australian, you know, components of that, which is obviously owned by Centre Group now. So having said all that, what is your bold prediction then for the flow and effect of that to the stock market? Yep. Where do you think we're going to be finishing uh, sort of end of 2020 in the ASX? I think we're going to be lower than where we are at the moment because... Write that down. That's a prediction. <laughs> it, it is a prediction. I've, I've been stunned by the fact that we got through 7,000 and then we'll get through 7,100 as well on the ASX 200. But the earnings base is not there to, to prop it up. Just to provide a little bit more colour on that, 
Okay, the, the, it, this is really simplified, but it'll give you a really good good idea, okay? 7% of the stock market is real estate investment trusts, so property. There's a mixture there. Commercial property is doing pretty well. Retail is not doing quite so well. Industrials, humdrum. That benefits usually from lower interest rates. I don't see uh, a collapse there like we saw in 2008 because they don't have a lot of debt. In 2008, these companies had a lot of debt. So that will produce a sort of lowish return. The next 28% of the market is financial stocks, mm. which is banks and insurers. Okay. Bank profits are going backwards. Okay. If interest rates get cut again, uh, just imagine you are the lucky owner of a company whose products cost zero. Okay. And you sell your product for money. But then the people you sell it to say, ah, oh, sorry, uh, we're giving you a price reduction your margins have got to contract because you're paying nothing for your core product. Banks pay zero interest on not all of their deposits by a long chalk. But basically, if rates come down again, then their revenue suffers and they can't get their costs down. So their margins get compressed. Their fees are under pressure from everywhere, whether it's foreign entrant banks like ING, you know, who are extremely appealing to younger people, and older people, <laughs> um, uh, or whether it's an alternative source of accessing money, whether it's BNPL or some derivative of that. So those fees are under pressure. They can't get their costs down as quickly as they want to because the regulator won't let them. So if you work in a bank at the moment, there's half a chance you're going through 10-year-old files, you know, working out whether Ren got ripped off, uh, you know, when he bought that uh, <laughs> when he bought that insurance from his, you know, to cover his credit card. The answer, by the way, if you did, was yes, you yeah. did. <laughs> um, so you, you've got that. So you can't get costs down as quickly as they want to. And bad debts will rise. They won't rise in such a way that you get 1992 all over again, where, where obviously two of our major banks were on the brink. But you will get bad debts rise in such a way that it's going to be negative to profits. Within the banking sector, it's quite clear there's been a big winner and there's been two big losers. Okay, The big winner was the guys who fessed up to being naughty first and also sold off their wealth management and life insurance businesses first at quite amazing prices. And that, of course, is ComBank. That's reflected in the fact Commonwealth Bank is one of the most expensive personal banks in the world. Okay, 17 times year's worth of earnings you pay. Of course, we've got two other banks who are scrambling to work out what day of the week it is, um, <laughs> you know, and have got problems, which is Westpac and National Australia Bank. And the ANZ have addressed a lot of things. Next bold prediction, if you wanted to own a bank share and just one-on-one -on -one only, I would own ANZ in preference. There you to go. The nice. ANZ will outperform the other big four. Is that the I, I think I think it will because I think, I think that they've got a management team that gets it. They, they understand what's going on. They don't have a lot of garbage to clean up. And they have been able to reduce their costs. They went through some of their rubbish a year and a half to two years ago. So I think they've got a little bit of a cleaner future, whereas whereas NAB, have, you know, they've got a new MD and he's got to do a lot of digging. So back to the market. That's 28% of the market. Uh, insurers are going to have some issues this year for yeah. obvious reasons. Some of the smaller banks are going to have some real issues. So and my next bold prediction is don't be surprised if there are some mergers in the banking sector. Okay. Okay. So you've got three 
smaller banks, uh, some you know listed. Um, there's actually more. There's a couple. There's a couple of other real small ones. So I think something will happen with Bank of Queensland or Bendigo or Suncorp. Okay, three-way okay. merger, make it a big I five. I don't think they can make it a big. It, it's it. It certainly wouldn't be ruled out. Yeah. Okay. I think th- those companies are under a, quite some pressure, and and I think there's there's a real chance that that there's a bit of activity there. There'll be a time to buy shares in something like Bank of Queensland. I'm not there yet, but um, I, I think something like that. It's got some real issues. Okay, and I and I want to see a bit more sort of, um, you know, I, I want to see a bit more vomit in the bucket, so to speak, <laughs> before I get interested. But it's sort of getting there. So that's twenty eight percent of the market. There's about eighteen percent of the market is resources. Uh, resource prices, by and large, are at pretty good levels uh, for Australian resource companies. Iron ore, obviously, that depends on China. If you know what's going on in China, please tell me. Um, we know China's got a lot of debt. We know China's been happy to sign a piece of paper, which it will probably in future years be hung up in the smallest room in the house. There is nothing in that trade deal that is not drivable through with a double-decker bus sideways. Uh, there's nothing in it, and don't forget. If you think I'm being too cynical, we are not even close to being back anywhere near where the trade tariff situation was in 2018. We're not close mm. to that. We still have tariffs. Yeah. And the Chinese have agreed to buy some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, forget it. So I, I'm a bit leery of product prices in, in the sector. Um, I was very bullish about gold this time last year. That turned out to be correct. I probably took my money off the table a bit early. I wouldn't necessarily be in gold now, but in a big way, I'd always have a little bit as a hedge. But I think there is a chance that gold may have a bit of a resurgence again at some stage during uh, 2020. And our Australian gold stocks did really well last year, by and large, to be honest. They did really, really well. So you need to be a little bit careful. But the Australian dollar gold prices was recently close to a record high. Let it come down a bit. Certainly if gold in US dollar terms gets, you know, well into the 1400s, you know, it's currently around 1500 or just above, uh, you know, let it crap out a little bit and, and then get interested again. As a quick aside, I think the same reasons that might propel gold would encourage people to buy cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So that explains why you said explain, you thought yeah, it'd be up. Yeah, I actually did. I actually bought some Bitcoin at sixty-six. Whoa! Really? Yeah. You've been a Whoa. big yeah, uh, critter. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I think. Well, look. One of the things before we get to the other forty-four percent of the Australian stock market, which is the problem, <laughs> uh, you know, I think what what's happened quite clearly is that there's been more acceptance by people out of Bitcoin as uh, as an investment medium. Okay, the idea of Bitcoin being a transaction medium is a nonsense. But certainly people have, have bought it at times of stress. Notwithstanding, you know, so many of the f- trades in Bitcoin are fake. There are bots and robots dominate it. There are people put out, you know, really just false things and then they use robots and algorithms to push the price up. It can be pushed up by a relatively small number of people. But, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, I'm not. You know, you've got to be very careful because the thing, yeah, you know, the thing moves sort of twenty percent a month with alacrity. But um, I think at some stage it might might be interesting. The other forty four percent of the Australian stock market is what I, old fashioned guys like me called non bank industrials. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The biggest of them, of course, is CSL. Yeah. Yeah. Soon to be bigger, according to Bryce. (laughs) And the problem with non-bank industrials is they are the most expensive in terms of price versus future earnings that they've been in history. And even if you take CSL out, they are as well. So you take things like Woolworths, and I know Woolworths is breaking up, so it's not into into its two component parts of sort of sin and non-sin. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the share price rating of Woolworths, basically Woolworths earnings expectations haven't changed in the last year. If they have, they've gone down marginally, but only marginally. Uh, and of course, the shares have gone up over, well over 30%. And uh, you can say the same about a cross-section of well-held, major, non-banking, non-finance Australian companies that are not in the resource sector. So things like Ansel, Brambles, Woolies, Telstra. I haven't thrown West Farmers in there because, of course, they, they, they span out that, that magnificent <laughs> retailing concern, Coles. Yeah, that has so performed very well in that 2019. Is, that, is, that has performed very well once it got listed. So, But what you've seen is you've just seen, and it's why I use the analogy I used in, in, in my last quarterly letter, it's like you bought a house for a million bucks, you thought the rent would be $32,000 because you're going to rent it out. And a year later, the rent was 28 and a bit, but somebody's offered you one and a quarter million for it. What Great. do you, what do you, what do, you do? <laughs> you know, uh, because the alternatives maybe are, are a bit, you know, a bit tricky. So what's going on is that these shares are the most expensive they've ever been in my investment career with the most lacklustre, you know, with another year of lacklustre earnings forecast. So sooner or later, the penny will drop, and the penny will drop if these companies cut dividends, okay? They'll crawl over broken glass not to, Mm. but by and large, the penny will eventually drop on people. Yeah, it's like the folks who used to buy Telstra and it had a 28 cent dividend. Oh, it's got a 10, uh, it's got a, it's got an 8 cent dividend yield. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you lost 25% of your capital. And that's, that's, that's what's going to dawn on people here. And this has happened a few times over the last few years on the Aussie market with high yielders. You know, they, these are companies that are, you know, they're moderately well run by and large in an economy that's really difficult. So 
you know, there, there's problems ahead. So then bold prediction of what you've just described, best performing and worst performing. In areas of the Aussie market? Yeah. Yeah. I think to bust it sectorally would be quite difficult. Okay. Because I always, you know, for example, if you look at retail, there's no such thing as retail. In fact, and, and if we ignore the two large supermarket groups, if you look in discretionary retail, there's no such thing as discretionary retail. There are guys who operate in a difficult market and do it brilliantly. JB Hi-Fi. Mm. And there are other guys who operate in what should be quite good markets and go broke. Okay. My favorite retail stock, and I don't like the price it's trading at. And so I'm not there right now, but the kind of things I like and the kind of things you should look for, uh, my favorite retail stock, and I wish it was about 30 or 40 cents cheaper, uh, is Baby Bunting. Oh, yeah. That was Bryce's stock of the year last year. Um, and he did very well out of it. It is a superbly run company. It has a fantastic runway ahead of it. Yeah, with no competition. With no com- <laughs> yeah, competition's gone broke. And the key, the key thing about retailers for your listeners, the great thing about retailers is, is if you start ba- – Baby Bunting's got 53 stores uh, as we speak, okay? It's opening basically five to six stores a year, okay? Go look at their presentations because they're really – if you know what you're looking for – uh, even if you're a business student, not necessarily an investor, they're so transparent about what a store is. So you can work out really easily that to set up a new store costs about $1.2 to $1.3 million in fit out. And then to, you know, to basically put the inventory in, the average inventory per store is about $1.3 to $1.4 million. So if you're opening five or six of those, it's about $15 million a year of cash drain. Okay. Don't forget, it's not profit drain. It's just cash drain. Part of it's real cash drain because you're, you're putting up fit out, which if you move out, it's worth nothing. And then you're putting in inventory, which obviously you sell through. But if you're doing that and the company's earning over $30 million a year in EBITDA, uh, it, it's just self-funding. Inside, you know, by 2024, these guys should have 80 stores. Okay. The birth rate's flat, but we're getting immigration. Okay. So. If they've got 80 stores, they should be earning in the mid-60s millions of EBITDA. It's all self-funding. They'll be buying back shares by then, unless they do what a lot of Australian companies do, which is they have a really good strategic idea to either go into an adjacent market or overseas. Don't do it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a good, it's a really good company. I like it, not at $3.40, but something a bit lower. Yeah, I'd, I'd be in there. I think it's a really good stock to just buy it and hang on to it for five years. So, Andrew, we're approaching towards the end of our episode. I just want to recap on some of the bold predictions that you've made yep. and hoping that you can throw a few more at us. So, <laughs> yeah, we've, absolutely. we've got you on record as saying yeah, that's fine. Uh, Australia potentially in recession by the end of 2020. Oh, certainly, certainly. Certainly heading towards with, it. With yep. a rate cut. The ASX to finish lower than where we are now, but yes. that's after going through 7,100 points. Yep. ANZ will outperform the other big four banks. Yes. We're not to be surprised if there will be some mergers in the banking sector, yep. BOQ, Suncorp, or Bendigo. Ren's yep. made the bold prediction that there'll be a three-way, <laughs> three-way merger. Come on, come on, get it done. <laughs> and that gold will uh, have a resurgence again in 2020. At, at some stage. At my, some stage. Yeah, my other predictions are the S&P 500 will end the year lower than what it is at the moment. You know, we're over 3,300 at the moment. I think the S&P 500 will end up lower. We'll probably have another rate cut in the US. Volatility will 
will rear its head, is my real prediction, that the vol's too low, so volatility will rear its head. So wrap that together, I've given a few individual stock thoughts yeah. and, mm. and everything else. Globally, so in, in Australia, some of our bigger things we own in Australia are very esoteric indeed. Okay, they're really quirky. They're things trading at a discount to their asset backing and everything else. My suggestion for listeners is that they look at things like listed investment companies trading at a big discount. Make sure they're run by good people. But invest list, licks at a discount, there'll be corporate activity on them. Okay, that that was the story in the sector of 2019, um, big and small, and there'll be some more of it in 2020, particularly if markets are, are bumpy. So if you can find a good lick that's that's run by reasonable people, but their capital management skills are not very good, and they don't buy the shares back at a 20% discount, you know, just just you know ha- have a look at some of those. Uh, globally, sort of our major, you know, long holdings globally. We've been investors for four years plus in Exor, which is the Italian holding company for the Agnelli family, who founded Fiat in 1899. And uh, basically, that's been a magnificent performer. The What they've got happening in 2020 is Fiat is merging with Peugeot. Be a big dividend come to them. They're the biggest. Uh, they're the biggest beneficiaries of that. If it all goes according to plan, uh, they have a company called CNH, which owns things like New Holland tractors, Case tractors, and Iveco buses and trucks. And they're breaking the company into two. Uh, so they've got on highway, which is trucks and buses, and off highway, which is the agri equipment, very crudely. And I think there'll be a lot of benefit accrued to them out of that. They own a big reinsurance company, which is uh, which is very good. The shares trade about seventy euro. We we think they're worth about ninety seven. We still love the world's largest aircraft leasing company, which is Aircap, and we've owned that for four years. And they're in a great position now, with sort of Boeing you know, kind of out of action. <laughs> you know, remember Boeing's deliveries last year? Uh, uh, Boeing's order book was net negative last year wow. you know, first time in, in many years so if, if you're if you're the guys who've got planes on hand you know these guys have got 1600 plus planes they got the most brilliant management they got one of the best managements i've ever seen and you know they're still trading on a single digit price earnings multiple and a discount to their book value wow. so you know we, we're still uh, we're, we're still sort of fairly heavily invested in in that we've got by and large obviously we've been taking money off the table and have a net short position in our fund which is obviously you know not helped us if you can find a a hedge fund that is prepared to have a short bias during 2020, I think that might help you. There are some funds on the ASX. If you agree with me on the ASX, you can actually buy an ETF, which is called Bear, mm. uh, okay, which is basically a short ETF, and it's got Bear's Bear's got a supercharged. Uh, mate which is double leverage so if the market goes down 10 it should go down 20 uh, it won't quite because of the fees and everything else one of our biggest holdings in the US which I uh, mentioned this time last year in the financial review and everybody thinks I'm a clown because uh, the stock was about 24 25 bucks at the time and it's now below 16 is a company called Virtue Financial in the US Virtue benefits when volatility goes up it's a market maker so one of the biggest market makers in the US. So if you deal with guys like interactive brokers, and if I have one piece of, I can't call it advice, but if I have one <laughs> strong suggestion, open yourself an interactive broker's account because you'll get access to the whole world very cheaply. You can use algorithms 
to transact and you know set up strategies if you're that way inclined it's just far and away the best thing that you'll find and and particularly uh, i think it's fairly obvious that notwithstanding my view that the u.s stock market's um over the top you know at sort of you know nearly 20 times forward earnings yeah there's still opportunities beyond belief there so one of our biggest bets is virtue financial which um, basically runs the plumbing of the u.s market so it gets uh, interactive brokers they route their orders through guys like virtue okay so the, these guys basically it's about best execution using algorithms and you know really sophisticated systems and they've been expanding their business over the last few years but their profits haven't been reflecting that because of the lack of volatility so uh VIRT is the stock code there. XOR is EXO.MI because it's listed in Milan. AirCap is AER. We have a few other things which are a, a little bit uh, a little bit more esoteric. One lick trading overseas, give you an idea, is a company called Third Point Offshore, TPOU.LN because it's trading in London is the code. So that's Daniel Loeb. And that trades at about uh, over a 20% discount to MCA and they're buying back shares like they're going out of fashion. Wow. Awesome. Good list there. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're the kind of things we're, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're looking at, but, but that fits. I think the important thing about those companies is it, the narrative fits I've the given narrative. you, it fits yeah. the narrative. Mm. Now there's one company that I thought you would have shared some thoughts on, but hasn't come up yet. So I'm going to bring it up like a red rag to a bull. Yeah. Tesla. What are your bold <laughs> predictions for 2020? <laughs> so far, the, uh, the, the, the bold, the bold prediction for, uh, 2020 is if Tesla keeps doing this, I'll be Uber driving. <laughs> uh, Do you want to explain why? Yeah, yeah, we have a short position in Tesla. Yeah. Okay. The situation with Tesla is basically the stock was about in August. Uh, the shares got down to actually about 177 at their extreme low. The company needed to raise money, which it did previously. And of course, it actually got the shares went lower after it had raised money. They, they popped up a little bit into the low 200s. Then they reported their third quarter report in October. And the shares basically have gone round rampant since then from, let's call it 245 to a recent peak of 548, I think. At $548, the market value of their equity is about $96 billion US dollars. That makes them the third most valuable car company in the world. Yeah, more, behind- more than Ford and GM combined or something? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. So actually, it's also more than Daimler and Hyundai combined. Okay, the, the biggest car company by market value in the world is Toyota, and the next one is VW. Okay, uh, they also have Tesla have about fourteen billion dollars of debt. Okay, they do not, they didn't, they made money in the third quarter, but they made they made one hundred and forty million dollars. Okay, but three hundred million dollars of that came from selling uh, regulatory credits. Um, they buy, they basically sell their regulatory credits to Fiat. Okay, they won't be selling it to Fiat in 2021 because Fiat uh, with the Peugeot merger don't need them. So there's a reason the shares would have gone up ordinarily anyway because I think it's it's fair comment to make that the building of the, the Shanghai Giga factory, you know, Musk said a year and a bit and it's happened. So that you have to give him a, a tick for that achievement. They've sold 366,000 cars this year. In 2020, they'll sell, you know, they should sell 450,000 plus. But the trouble is, I think you're going to see that the demand for their cars in the US is actually going down. Okay. They've basically filled in all the people in San Francisco who earn big money who 
want one. So the demand for their cars is going down in the US. They've infilled a lot of the European markets, which are very pro-electric vehicles, Norway, and then most recently the Netherlands. So it's going to be a harder road for them in Europe where there's more competition anyway. They will sell more in China probably, but don't forget the Chinese market for cars going down. And there are nine electric vehicle producers in China. So there's a lot of competition there. So that, that's the big unknown. So people telling you categorically they're going to do this and they're going to do that, uh, that that's a genuine, you know, that, that's a big, bold call to make. I'm not saying it won't happen, but that doesn't matter because with a, an enterprise value being the debt plus the value of the equity of, of, you know, call it 110 billion roughly now, you know, that's, that's basically a crazy number for a company that, that is years away from sustainable cash flow. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're going to build another factory allegedly in Berlin. I think that's going to be a harder ask. Okay, and there, there are issues with their accounting in relation to the bringing to account of revenues for the full self-driving aspect of it. There are issues about how much they reserve for warranties. So the accounts are a bit, you know, they're not fraudulent. Let's get that right. They're, they're, but they're a bit flaky and on a quarterly basis, they're of course not audited. So you, know, you can push the envelope a little bit. And I think in the third quarter, they push the envelope and by gee, did they get a result? <laughs> I'm strongly not emotional about Tesla. I think one of the problems with Tesla and one of the problems of someone like me who's non emotional about these things, uh, is there are massively emotive people on both sides. You know, people who think Tesla is the world and have amazing price targets for it, which to me make no sense whatsoever. Uh, but equally, there are people who are so emotional and sit there in their bedroom grinding away trying to find another negative point about the company and are obsessive about yeah. it the other way around. You know, Tesla is not a fraud. Yeah, There are people out there who will tell you Tesla's a fraud. It is not a fraud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are 830,000 cars on the road. Mm-hmm. Okay, Have they pushed things? Has Musk made predictions that didn't come to pass? Yes. Has Musk arguably breached securities laws? Yes. Okay. Uh, does he continue to push the envelope? Yes. Are they worth the price they're trading at? No. Will they go broke? Highly unlikely. Okay. So, you know, it's just that I feel the, you know, the valuations of the company and there are a lot of catalysts to bring the value down, uh, were silly. You can't just sit there and say they're overvalued. You've got to understand what's going to change that. Uh, so I've, I've obviously been stunned by the fact that the shares have doubled since, uh, since basically the end of September. But, um, so I think, I think they'll have a trickier path, I think, in 2020 because it, it may become a bit clearer that the growth path for vehicle deliveries isn't as strong as people are anticipating at the moment. And if your listeners believe that markets are efficient and investment bankers and analysts are really smart and good people, why is it in the last few weeks all of a sudden people who had a price target for Tesla of 300 and something, so they were mildly optimistic, have suddenly revised that price target to 600 because the shares of, and why have they done that? Is it because they've done a wholesale new reassessment of Tesla? No. You know, and their business? No, it's because the share price has gone up. In other words, it's BS. Nice. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Yeah. Hold on. Before we uh, before we wrap, um, yeah. there's been a lot of sort of, I guess, uh, negativity around Australian market and the US market in 2020. There's a lot of cause for concern. And I think to finish it, maybe can you tell us about a part of the world where there's a financial bright spot, where there's a 
good positive Brent, story no <laughs> to uplift us at the end of this episode. Bre- Brexit. <laughs> UK stocks are cheap. I mean, there's no question about that. India. The, uh, the issue is uh, India is interesting. We've we've had an investment okay. thing called Fairfax India Holdings, which I basically it, it's kind of it, it's a lot of an unlisted portfolio. Its biggest holding is is Bangalore Airport. UK stocks are che- they're, they're pretty cheap relative to you know most other things around the world, but people have people have changed their view on Brexit because it took so long. I mean, it still hasn't been done. Yeah, you know, it went from being Brexit will be a disaster to you know let's get it over and done with because that will be good. So I, I don't think you can change your view on that. I mean, it does mean that you know, Britain's ability to export to other markets is going to be restrained, but don't forget that it doesn't help Europe because Britain's a huge market for you know French companies, Italian companies, German companies, Spanish companies. So you know, trying to find something, you know, trying to trying to sort of figure out, yeah, you know, the UK looks interesting, and I think is well worth doing more homework on and delving into. There's probably, I mean, you know, we're, we're having we're having a change of government in Argentina, so that usually presages a massive run up in the market, which then reverses itself in ten minutes. Because <laughs> you know, yep. it's you know it's a country of you know it's a country of growth, insurrection, war, and revolution. You know, in those cycles, and uh, they've had plenty of them since sort of 1815. It's really hard to find places that are that are cheap. To be to be honest, guys, I think I mean everybody's getting on the emerging uh, emerging markets bandwagon. You know, don't forget if China slows, a lot of those markets will struggle. Mm. So, you know, I'd I'd be a little bit sort of, uh, you know, leery about that. One market I'm a really strong believer in long term, you know, because – yeah, it's got the benefits of demography. It's got the benefits of you know government control. Uh, it's opening up bit by bit by bit. Um, it's got a banking sector that's a bit crumbly, I've got to say. But you know, the one market I think people should spend more money and time researching is Vietnam. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. It's been yeah. a big. I mean, it's been a big beneficiary of the China trade. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Imbroglio, if you will. But uh, Vietnam's quite interesting. Um, and there's various unit trusts you can buy. So you, it's, you, you struggle to buy Vietnamese stocks individually, you know, unless you have Vietnamese background and some, some relos over there and things like that. But it's certainly there are various unit trusts you can buy. And I think it's a market you need to do some homework on, though, for sure. But sort of, you know, funny, funny markets like that, I still think, you know, you've got demographics in your favor. Yeah, which is you know demographics are the you know best growth animal ever, of course. So you've got that in your favour, and and I think um, China may look inward a bit. You know, it's sorted itself out for the time being with this funny bit of paper, but <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it needs to get its own economy in shape. Yeah. So there you, there you go. Well, we've got some awesome predictions on paper, Andrew on record. Right. What we'll do, Andrew, is check in sort of midway through the year to see where we're at with all of these. And of course, we'll be doing that. You'll be doing that from the back seat of my Uber. And make sure you give me five stars. Yeah. <laughs> you can drive a Tesla as your Uber car. Oh, God. I, I couldn't afford the lease payment. <laughs> now, Andrew, you run E72, which is yeah. a listed investment company. So, if our listeners are really liking what you're saying and want to put some money with you, uh, can they do that? Uh, they have to be a, a sophisticated investor to do that, okay. uh, unfortunately. The shares don't trade very much. Uh, okay. They're listed on the NSX. They can certainly, I mean, at some stage, we we will grow the company a little bit further. Uh, our performance record in the last couple of years is obviously not very good. Uh, you know, we've been 
far too cautious, whereas people who've thrown caution to the wind have, you know, you know, obviously got a very good return last year. So we're, you know, we're, we're very value driven and value's not been the place to be. Plus we've been short things that, um, arguably we went too short too early on a few things. Uh, it is a very aggressive fund. It does use gearing and leverage, so it's quite aggressive. So its net asset value flies around a bit. So it's the sort of thing that that most people these days talk about core and satellite yeah. uh, things that they invest in. So uh, just in equities, for example, your core might be an indexed ETF or something like that. And then you put satellites around it for things that may have a special meaning to you, you know, sort of, uh, you know, some sort of technology ETF or, you know, technology company or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, there, there might be room for something that's just off the planet. And I wouldn't say I'm off the planet, but it's, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly sort of uh, a bit further out in space <laughs> than a few other things. I think one of the biggest recommendations for everyone in the community, Ren, and you often put these in thought starters is to just sign up to your um, mailing list, Andrew, because yeah. your quarterly reports are essentially what you have just discussed in the last hour, but on paper form. Absolutely. Um, so very transparent, very honest, and just a, a great insight into the way you're thinking about structuring E72. So east72.com.au. Yeah. East yeah. And there's, there's a piece there that's got the investment reports or reports. And if you go down there, there's both the quarterlies, there's 14 of them since we started, mm. and, uh, and and a few of the presentations we've done where and we usually look at companies, so you can get an idea of how we actually look at a company, yeah. and some of the companies have been pretty varied uh, across the way. No, it's awesome. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for your time this morning. It's been um, incredibly insightful. Um, not sure how I'm feeling about 2020, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> nervous. <laughs> nervous. Uh, it will yes. make for good content. It will <laughs> make for some great content. Could be a big year for us. Yes. We might be checking in with you sooner than we think, Andrew. But um, we'll keep in touch over the sort of the next six months, and um, we do a show where we'll touch base on all of our predictions to see how they're going. No revisions allowed. No. <laughs> Sorry, can I just add one one minor thing right at the end? Absolutely. Yeah. One one thing that, that there are some companies for this. Uh, one thing people talk about content a lot. Okay, you know, so Netflix and stuff like that. You all know the best content you can possibly have is sport. Yes, KO. There yes. are there are there are various companies around the world that own real genuine content. So they own the original content. We we've actually got two of those in our portfolio. Okay, which uh, one is Madison Square Garden Companies. Yeah. So they own the building, the air rights, or half the air rights above it, but they own the two sports teams that play in it. One of them is, if any of you follow B-ball, of course, one of them you know is the standing joke, which is the New York Knicks, who are still the most valuable team in basketball. The other is the ice hockey team, the New York Rangers. Those teams are going to be spun off from MSG companies this year. So that, that, that makes it really interesting. So if you have a look, I did a piece last year in one of my quarterlies on uh, all 32 basketball teams and the transaction price they last transacted at, what the internal rate of return was from that price to the current Forbes valuations, who do it every year, and the Forbes valuations are usually conservative. Okay, so it's it's pretty amazing stuff. Owning a b-ball team is a really not a bad thing, and b-ball is the sport. You know, it is the sport. Now, it's not American. I mean, American football is still the most popular, but basketball is just a global phenomenon mm -hmm. now, uh, with the NBA at its top. Um, the other thing we own is a French conglomerate called Bolloray. Bolloray control Vivendi with 21% of the stock, but a lot more than that of the voting rights. And Vivendi owns Universal Music Group. Okay. 
yeah, which you is go. you know which has got all your favorite artists on it <laughs> and the good news is it's got all of my favorite artists as well. <laughs> so uh, that is a really cheap company as well so so it's those kind of contents rather than Netflix that uses up three and a half billion dollars a year of negative cash flow to yeah. put its stuff out where we're short so not buying the Brisbane Broncos on the ASX as well I actually used to own shares in the Brisbane Broncos a long time ago um, I don't see unfortunately Australian sport as being um, a major grower. In fact, Australian sports got massive, massive, massive problems. And the reason they got massive, massive problems is a six-letter word called Foxtel, because Foxtel are not going to be spending the money on Australian sport content in renegotiations that others are, or, or that they could in the past. Obviously, they, you, you're all migrated to KO from Foxtel. Yep. Uh, the the free to air networks certainly don't have the money. Just look at the share prices, Jesus. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so where's the money going to come from? Either they're going to lose it completely, and it is the transition entirely. So you're going to be watching rugby league on Optus mm. or Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime or uh, Twitter or something like that. That don't rule that out, okay? Or ESPN go even more global. Yeah, or ESPN go more global, or or the uh, uh, you know the B in guys from the Middle East go yeah. global. So there is that chance, okay, that that, that they biff off the traditional uh, purveyors of Australian sport and that the money does continue to flow. But by and large, Australian sport is coming to a really big inflection point when the next contracts come up for renewal. So, you know, the, the Broncos of the world, you know, it might be a tougher road ahead apart from the, apart from the fact that probably got the wrong players and the <laughs> wrong well, coach. Here's a, here's a light bulb prediction from me. Disney own ESPN and Disney Plus has just launched in Australia. ESPN gets folded into Disney Plus and they buy the major sports rights to one of Australia's sports. Interesting. That, that, is, that is not a bold prediction. That is a very sensible and reasonable prediction. As say, Disney, if you're looking for... <laughs> where, where I would be wrong on sports teams is that we go from... We go from the traditional to the streaming in the next contracts. Mm. Okay. Well, we've seen it once in Australia already with English Premier League football, you know, where, you know, you can't watch anything basically now on, you know, on, on traditional TV with free to air or cable. Uh, you know, you've got to get Optus to do it. Mm. So there's a, there's a chance that happens and that will be the salvation of some, some of these, uh, you know, some, some of these other Australian sports teams. Uh, and my other, uh, my other bold prediction, of course, is, uh, is, is a three peat. <laughs> Ah, uh, come on. <laughs> Roosters. He saved it right to the end. <laughs> he did. How do you feel about Latrell going to South? Um, I think Latrell's been quite badly advised, but very much maligned. You know, let's, let's be sensible. Latrell is 22 years old. Um, he's been a fabulous player. He's won two comps. Um, and he, I, I think, had some folks helping him out who, probably didn't give him the best advice. It really depends, to be blunt, um, and I think where Latrell's ended up at South is really smart um, because South have a magnificent culture of nurturing Indigenous players. You know, you look at the team they have at the moment, you know, it's sort of chock full of, you know, strong Indigenous players. Um, you know, they've got a great culture, obviously, with, you know, Greg Inglis, you know, backing it up and, you know, and, and helping out and coaching there. So, you know, your Cody Walkers and, uh, you know, and, and players of, of, of that ilk, you know, and James Roberts, uh, my two boys unfortunately had the joy of playing against and under <laughs> 
twelves, thirteens, fourteens, fifteens, and particularly sixteens. Um, you know, so it's a great culture for the trail. Uh, to be at. So if he was going to leave the Roosters, unfortunately, even though it is a mortal enemy, for him it's good. Um, I hope it works for him because I think it would be tragic if he were to leave a really safe environment of the Roosters who are magnificently managed, um, you know, and, and then find himself, you know, injured or scrambling at, at an early age when his earning potential is, is and his football potential and his chance to show all of us how good he is is so great. I do think somewhere along the line something went wrong between him, his advisors, and um, the, the one billionaire owner of a uh, full, uh, sorry, not owner, but the one billionaire chair of a uh, uh, NRL team, it's uh, Mr. Nick Politis. I think, I think something went wrong somewhere along the, the line there, and, and I think it's fairly obvious that the Roosters decided to let Luttrell go, and I think there's a period of time where he probably wanted to stay, and uh, it hasn't happened, which is a shame, but anyway, good luck to him. So last uh, last bold prediction: short roosters, long south. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, what I would say, what I would say is, if you're being offered four dollars at this stage of the season about the roosters doing a three-peat, uh, that is not a value investment. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave it there on a uh, prediction, bold prediction, sports related, as we always like to as well. Ren, Andrew, thanks for your time. Pleasure, and, guys. Uh, looking forward to a 2020. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. thanks. And you know, just reiterate to everybody. Uh, you know, just as I used to say on the Hill Street Blues, be careful out there. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.